Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And uh, I'm nearly there. I have two more books to read and then it's my weekend and I get a day off and I get tonight, hopefully, to see my friends for once in a long time and play games and drink beer and I'm really, really, really looking forward to it. Uh, So today what we're going to be talking about is not my impending game night with my friends where I'm likely to drink like three too many beers and uh, have trouble getting home. No, tonight uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the global world that I see as one of the big stakes of the entire history that I'm studying. So right now we live in a global world. We move from place to place without too much trouble. We get our food, our news, our music from places all over the world. And we do so because of advantages in transportation and the cheapness of information. And the same sort of system developed in the 19th century British world, except that It all collapses in 1914. So part of the big stakes of what I've been doing over the last couple weeks of my reading of my whole historical project is to explain some of the preconditions of this global world and to see how it fell apart. So today what I want to talk about briefly is that one of the big elements of holding this global world together was the global movement of people. Of course, this happens before the 19th century. In the 18th century, we have uh, lots of migration going from Britain to North America, for instance. It's where you get people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and all those folks. And in what is quite a, a usual pattern, oftentimes people moved back to Britain for part or some of their lives. Remember Ben Franklin, once he got rich enough, went to London and Paris for years, being a politician and a scientist and a general man about town. Also, even before that, you get European traders going off to Asia. You get the Spanish conquest of uh, Mesoamerica. All of these things are happening. But the difference is, like with so much else, in the 19th century, you get an increase in scale and density. Once you get the combination of telegraph and steamboat, then bulk trade, the movement of heavy objects long distances, becomes much, much cheaper. And bulk trade, heavy goods over long distances, includes people. So, once you get this global movement of people, you get new kinds of world communities knit together by global migration, shared culture, information, travel, and networks. Between 1850 and 1914, about 14 million British people moved overseas. 40% of them, at some point in their life, came back to Britain and might have left again. Most of these people went to America, but some also went to parts of the British dominions in the empire and the informal empire. So there were white settler colonies that were in the most popular, like Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. And then there was also a significant uh, but smaller movement to the empire. So to India, Ceylon, Kenya, Argentina, Shanghai, and so on. A good representative of this knit-together global world is the crime writer Raymond Chandler, who was born in the late 19th century. He 
uh, after getting born in Chicago, moved to Nebraska as a kid. Then when he was 12, his mom and him, uh, his mom who was an Irish citizen, moved to London for an education. After he went through all of the hoops that a smart young boy who's interested in literature went through, like going to public school, he took the civil service exam, was a naturalized British citizen, and worked in some of the machinery of government that might interest us a bit later. When he grew bored with it, he borrowed money from an uncle and then moved back to America, where he lived in San Francisco and L.A. until 1917, when, interested in the Great World War, he joined the army where he fought in Europe as a Canadian soldier. So, just to get that confusing story straight for you guys, we have an American born to an Irish mother who moved to England, became a naturalized British citizen, moved back to America, and fought for the Canadians in World War I. This is the British world. And there's two ways that I think that this British world gets solidified. The first is contact and help from home from Britain. And we can imagine this small at first. We can imagine all of these people in the British diaspora writing letters home. You can imagine the steamships that are carrying these letters back and forth from Australia and South Africa over to London and Croydon and Shropshire. Also in those holds are remittances, money orders that become increasingly specialized over time as people in the wealthier colonies send money back to their poorer relations back home in Britain. Also, of course, within these holds are the raw materials that the colonies are producing for the metropole. Because why are so many people moving out there? Why is there so much interest? Well, a lot of these colonies have something lacking, and that something is some combination of capital, there's not enough machines and not enough money, and people. There's not enough people who have the know-how to do what needs to be done. And British imperialism was pushing out to these areas where it saw that there was lack of capital and people, and it was providing the capital and sometimes the people, to do the things that it needed to get done. And this was the production often of raw materials, of ores, of coal, of cotton, of wool, of meat, of gems, of gold. And so this was linked with a massive investment of British people in their colonies, in the British world. Uh, this happened especially uh, frequently after a law was passed, I think in 1890, that meant that colonial securities were an acceptable investment for trustees. Remember, we talked about a couple days ago how middle-class women often in the 19th century did not actually have control of their money. Their money was in a trust that was administered by a trustee. Well, in the late 19th century, these trustees could put the money that they had to invest for their moms and their sisters and their aunts and their uncles into colonial securities, which increased the amount of capital available for them. This was usually invested either in government bonds or in infrastructure, in the ports and roads and railways and telegraphs that the economy needed so that it could make 
all of these raw materials and ship them back to Britain. Uh, then they're, they're uncountable. An example is the Buenos Aires Rail, uh, Great Southern Railway, which was funded with British capital. Uh, the Melbourne Railways were funded by British capital. Pretty much any railway that you have in the British Empire was funded by this great pool of money. Especially in the Dominions, you had a special kind of civil servant called a crown agent whose entire job it was was to connect the needs of the government of the localities with the expertise of the wider British world. You need a railway in Melbourne? Well, you go to your local crown agent who has contacts all across the British world. He knows where to get the engineers. He knows where to get the iron. He knows how to build it. He knows the legal regulations that you need to get passed. And he knows how to keep the workers down if they need to be kept down. So that was the first foundation of the British world, this connection between colony and metropole. But there's a second foundation of this British world, the recreation of it in the colony itself, the creation of a cultural sense of Britishness that participated in a wider identity than just, you know, a bunch of Welsh people living in Argentina. And this is firmly cultural. It's not only the English language, but the English language was a huge part of it. Uh, there was a gigantic movement of books and newspapers from the metropole down to the colony. People in Sydney were reading the same sort of serialized novels that people read in Great Britain itself. I remember when I lived in Australia and was an amateur writer, something that people talked about was the cultural cringe which meant the persistent feeling of inferiority that the writers and artists of Australia felt towards the writers and artists of Britain, because it was the writers and artists of Britain whose work kept on going down to Australia, and very, very rarely were the writers and artists of Australia or India or South Africa getting their work published in Britain itself. But it's more than just language, more than just newspapers, more than just popular songs. It's what you think of when you think of Britain. Remember that book, Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management, that we talked about way long ago when we spoke about food? Basically, it was this household management and cookbook. Well, it was incredibly popular in the colonies. This is what gave colonial wives and servants the instructions on how to make good British food in alien places. This British cultural world was also knit together by the sports that seem so British to us today. Sports like soccer and cricket and rugby. Sports that now, even today with the Commonwealth, knit together the Commonwealth in some sort of shared cultural enterprise and give the colonials a really great feeling when they get to continually trounce Britain in cricket. And a big part of this is my personal area of research, social clubs. Clubs were ubiquitous in every single place that British people moved. These were often elite and they were always exclusive. They always said that certain people couldn't join, whether those people were less elite colonial service members or more often than not, native people. Um, there's just countless instances of these colonial clubs, and I just want to tell you one that I found incredibly interesting. In the 1860s, British farmers founded the Society of Rural Argentina, which started off as a society of social gatherings where cattle people would talk about their cattle, but became the most powerful cattlemen's guild of Argentina. 
And it was this network of contact and culture which knit the British world together. It allowed people to imagine that there were bounds of trust and co-belonging between people who had never met one another before, just because they had the same king and queen, just because they spoke the same language and read the same newspapers, just because they sang the same songs and all made gross food from Mrs. Beaton's book. And this was great for Britain. The places that were growing, these colonies, were the fastest growing markets for British goods after 1850. Now I'm going to read two books and hopefully go off and play games with my friends. Thanks very much for listening today. Uh, I have to thank Duncan Barton for the image and Jonathan Lear for the music. If you like the show, rate us and review us on iTunes. Leave us a note on historian.live where you can find past episodes and tell your friends about us. Thanks very much, and I'll see you guys tomorrow.